Well, good morning. About three years ago, something really significant happened in my life. I, I think that's an understatement. Uh, but I became a dad. Uh, my uh, oldest son, Walter, is almost three years old. He'll be three in May. And something profound happens when you, you have a kid, something that's a tremendous change. It has nothing to do with all like, the little things you learn. It just changes perspective entirely when you, you have a life placed in in your care and your responsibility. Uh, I noticed a little way that it changed uh, recently. It really clicked with me. I love movies. Uh, I, I love watching movies. I love analyzing movies. I love digging into them and, and, and discovering more about them. And something that happens occasionally in, in movies is you, there will be a scene where a, a child may be put in peril, um, a, a kid in, in trouble and is need of saving. Now, normally, this is an upsetting thing as it is. None of us want to see, even actors, we don't want to see kids placed in trouble. It creates an emotional response. But when I became a dad, it changed my perspective on that. No longer am I looking at this and going, oh, no, you know, somebody saved that kid. But I can't help but picture my son in that situation. And I can't help but have this emotional response that's deeper of saying, somebody save that kid. Now, I, I think about uh, um, the movie Jurassic Park. Um, it, and uh, so the scene where the, the T-Rex is, um, has escaped. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling Jurassic Park for you. Uh, it's been out for a long time, okay? So, so sorry for that. Those of you who haven't seen it, well, watch it. It's great. Um, but in the scene, the the T-Rex breaks out of its cage and is attacking one of the cars, and in that car are just two children. They, the adults have left them. They're alone, and they're screaming, and they're terrified. And when before I had kids, I watched that and, and said, oh, oh my gosh, that's terrible. You know, it's frightening. It, it, it invokes that response. But now that I have kids, and, I, and if I find myself picturing my kids in that situation, it's a completely different emotional response. Now it's like, somebody save them. Please put me out of this, this anxiety because that, they can't be left there. I'm screaming like the, the girl is in, in the scene where she's saying, they left us, they left us. Like, they left them, they left them. I'm just terrified. It, it creates such an emotional weight. I find myself not being able to, to really watch these, these scenes. They, they're tough for me. They're heavy on me. When I watch these movies or TV shows and kids go through um, horrific things, I don't want that for my kid. It makes me want to grab my son and hold him close and say, it's not going to happen to you. It's going to be okay. I'll keep you safe. And it's because what, what happens when, when you have a child, when God blesses uh, people with placing a child in their care, now you're responsible for their, their life and their well-being, their existence, and they become reliant upon you. And so this reliance is based on what my son sees and how I respond to the responsibility I have. My, my, my son sees that I'm responding to this responsibility. He knows he can rely on me. Uh, when I was younger, I was the, the type of kid that when my parents went shopping, um, my, if they saw breakable things, they would immediately look for me and say, Kyle, pockets. 
Like, uh, that's, that's what happened. They knew that if I touched something breakable, there was a greater than 75% chance that it was going to break. Like, they, they just knew that. And so, Kyle, pockets, anytime, put your hands in your pockets. Didn't say that to any of my, uh, my, my other two brothers. Didn't say that to them. They just knew that Kyle pockets, that, that was, was my thing. My wife was in the first service. I think she, she was thinking, uh, you know, just when you were a kid, like, you still break stuff. Uh, so... That, that's this mindset. I think it kind of really distorted um, uh, things for me later on in life. Uh, not not going to lie. Um, when my, a friend of mine, when I was in college, a friend of mine who was older than me, him and his wife, uh, they had their first child. I went over to their house to celebrate with them and congratulate them. And the, the question comes along, Kyle, do you, you want to hold him? And all I can hear is, Kyle, pockets. <laughs> no. Hold him. Like, we're not talking about, hey, hold this expensive camera. Hey, hold this fa- family heirloom, uh, of which I think I've broken both of those in, in friendships, but that's a whole different thing. No, now it's, it's here is this life that we've been entrusted with. Um, let me put it in your hands. And all I'm hearing is Kyle Pockets. <laughs> and so I remember I was like, wait, 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 hold on. Let me just sit down on the couch. Okay, you bring him to me and I'll hold him. Okay, you're cute. And he gets hiccups. I'm like, ah, I broke him. <laughs> oh, no, no, he's, he's okay. Like, okay, Kyle, you want to bring him back to me? No, 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 no. You come to me and you pick him up. Like, this heavy weight on me because now that reliance was passed to me. Like, now this child is relying on me not to drop him. And that's terrifying. Now, with my kids, it's different, right? When I had kids, I'll lift them up and throw them around and, and, you know, toss them in circles, whatever. It's because I trust myself with them. They're, They're my kid. I've only dropped them once. That's completely fine. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think I have. But no, I, I, I can do that because my son fully trusts me, and I trust myself with him, and there, there's this relationship of reliance. See, my, my son, through repeatedly me showing that, that I care for him, me repeatedly showing I'm going to be there for him, what takes place is he knows that when trouble uh, occurs, he knows where to run. So if Walt is playing with friends and he falls and hurts himself, he doesn't run to his friends. He doesn't run to his toys. He runs to daddy. He doesn't run to his friends or his toys. He runs to mommy, whoever's there, the one that he knows he can rely on. My, my, my son has a, a, a blanket, you know, like a security blanket. He loves this thing. It's like tattered around the edges already. Uh, you know, just three years of him holding it close every night. He loves this thing. There's, there's been a couple times where he's like, I love you. I'm like, I love you too. Walt. I was talking to blanket. Okay, so he has this blanket, and, but when Walt gets hurt, he wants his blanket, but that's not the first thing he goes to. When he gets hurt or when he gets scared, the first thing he goes to, he runs to daddy. He holds his arms up as, as if to say, pick me up. And I scoop him up, and then he might ask for a blanket, but he knows where he's supposed to run to first. He knows that there is safety in my arms, this reliance on his father. And we see a glimpse of Jesus modeling this for us in God's Word. See, we're in this series, Imprints of Christ. 
What are these moments in the last days of Jesus where he, he impresses something on uh, us, on humanity, teaching us these final lessons? Because in the end uh, of his life, he was under tremendous crisis, tremendous uh, trials that he was facing. And for all of us, when, when we see somebody walking through difficult times, it shows us something different about them as if to expose um, um, what, what their true character is. And we see that in our own lives. We understand a different level of resiliency and a different level of our personality and our character when we go through trials. And it's no different for Jesus. Jesus is going through a tremendous trial, and we get to see these glimpses of the impact he wants to make and the legacy he wants to leave on these lives, on these friendships, on, on, on these people. And we get to remember this. And so that's what this series is about. And we get another glimpse of that in the Garden of Gethsemane as he goes to meet with the Father. He goes to meet with the Father. And so we're going to be looking at the story of the Garden of Gethsemane uh, this morning and looking at these different moments as he retreats with the disciples and he prepares for his inevitable, inevitable betrayal. See, Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. And in these moments, we get to see the fullness of his humanity. Fullness of his humanity on display as he awaits this betrayal. So the story of Jesus in the garden is found in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each of them recording the story the same, different details here and there, but the, the bulk of the story, the, the root of the story is, is the same, the, the lesson there. And so we're going to read the entire story together um, from Mark, but I'm, I'm going to point uh, to the story in Matthew and Luke as we go throughout. But you can find the story in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. This is taking place after the Lord's uh, Supper, after the, this Passover meal. He, he leaves with uh, the disciples, and they go to this garden. It was a, a favorite place to retreat for them. And so verse 32, chapter 14 of Mark says this, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed this, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So in the garden, we get to see something that's truly unique and truly special. In this moment, we get to see the father-son relationship 
as, as Jesus is fully God, full, fully man, he submits as person of Jesus to the authority of the Father. It's a very unique relationship that is um, going on constantly in the life of Jesus, but mainly internally. And yet here, nearing the end of his life, we get to see this on display, this unique dynamic taking place in a tangible way. The cup that Jesus talks about, that this cup may, may pass from him, it's the metaphor for the wrath of God for which is poured out on, uh, uh, on sinners in, in righteous judgment and would be poured out on Jesus. And so a tremendous trial is what he's about to face, this intense, intense trial. Jesus entrusts himself into the personal hands of the Father. He's preparing for this. And he hands over this moment to the will of God, the will of the Father. So through this, Jesus leaves behind an imprint in this moment. And this imprint is that in the garden, Jesus imprints upon us the importance of relying on the Father. It's so incredibly important to discover the, the need to rely on the Father. And he models this for us. And so what we're going to do for the remainder of the time today is we're going to take a closer look at um, practically how relying on the Father affects us and and, and what it does for us and what it does for Jesus in these moments. And so here's the first thing. The reliance on the Father, it humbles us in the midst of our troubles. Reliance on the Father humbles us in the midst of our troubles. In the the Matthew telling of this story, in Matthew 26, 39, it says this, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. See, once Jesus moves away to focus his attention on his personal time with the Father, he falls on his face. It's the first thing he does. He falls on his face before God. It's a visual representation of the humbling of his heart. Visible representation. And we, we see that in, um, in, in relationships today when someone... Uh, sits lower, they're uh, submitting to authority. That's what we see in the Olympics, right? When the silver medalist and the bronze medalist, they don't stand on the top of the podium. They are, they are submitting that they, they are humbling themselves in those positions. But this was a willing submission, a willing humility. But notice I didn't say humiliation. This was a willing uh, moment of humility, but this isn't humiliation. He had not yet been humiliated, but this is what sets the tone for that. He had not yet been stripped naked. He had not yet been beaten um, with, with a cat of nine tails. He had not yet had a crown of thorns placed on his head and been nailed to a cross. Until, and mocked until he breathed his last breath. That, that hadn't happened yet, but it had to start somewhere with him admitting uh, to, to this. To, to openly and willingly accept this humiliation that was coming, this humbling had to take place in this willing humility as he bows before God. And so he bows, but he also submits in what he says. He, he's honest in this moment. 
he, he wants the cup to pass from him. He feels the weight of this moment. He wants that. And yet, he says, but it's not about me. It's not about my will, but I'm submitting to the will of the Father. See, we learned last week as Bart talked about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, we learned that Jesus uses his humility to, to lead. This interesting um, common thread as he goes towards his final moments of life, as he continues one after another, humbling himself, willingly humbling himself. And yet in our world, we we're told kind of the opposite of this. We, the world is all about fighting for positions of control and only conceding control when it's beneficial or comfortable for us. Like that's how the world operates. And yet Jesus is operating outside of that and showing that no, what's most important is to submit to the authority of the Father. Submit to the authority of the Father. I had a friend uh, tell me a story. Um, from when he first started driving. And his dad sat him down and said, listen, son, I hope you obey all the traffic laws, but if you get pulled over, this is what I expect you to do. I expect you to be nothing but gracious and kind and respectful to the, the officer that pulls you over. It doesn't matter if you feel like you were in the right or the wrong. You, you thank him when he's done giving you a ticket. You thank him uh, sincerely. And my, my friend was like, I, that really frustrated me. Like the idea that he said, even if I'm in the wrong, I'm not supposed to argue. Even if I, oh, sorry, sorry. Even if uh, he's in the wrong, I'm not supposed to argue. Even if I feel like I'm right, I'm not supposed to, to fight back. It bothered him uh, until he was riding in the car with his dad and his dad got pulled over. And he watched as his dad modeled out every single thing that he told him to do. He said, in that moment, the, the idea of authority clicked for me. I understood that it wasn't about my position, but about respecting and honoring that authority in my life. It wasn't about what was convenient or beneficial. It's about an authority being placed over us. And so what I'm getting at is the, the image of Jesus falling on his face and, and pleading with the Father is not weakness, but it's this glimpse of, of authority that's modeled for us. You see, how can, we, how can we honor and respect the authority of God if we can't honor and respect the, the authorities um, in between us and God? That he's placed over us in our kind of everyday life, the temporary worldly authorities. You might think, well, well, God is king. He, he sits on a, a, a mighty throne. I, I can easily get behind that, but all these other authorities of the world, I can't do that. But that would be like an employee of a company bypassing every manager and vice president and president going straight to the CEO with anything that he felt worthy of, of their attention. And that would be seen as, and maybe in the workplace you've seen this, people like subverting your authority or, or, or uh, seeing other people subvert authority. And you don't, you don't see that as humbling. You see that as arrogant. And so it's arrogant for, for us to, to lay aside all other authority that God's placed in, in our life, the, the rulers and principalities over the, the, this world, to, to not honor and respect them. doesn't mean you agree 
doesn't doesn't mean that that we uh, we, we don't uh, that we just always take guilt upon ourselves, but there has to be an honor and respect, and and so. There's this model of authority here, even Jesus falling on his face. Even Jesus humbling himself in these moments, feeling the weight. See, Jesus was not above falling on his face and pleading. Again, this isn't weakness. This isn't weakness. It's it's not for show. No, Jesus was praying out of necessity. He needed to go to the Father. He needed to pursue the Father. He needed to express this. He needed to plead with God because the weight of what he was going to bear was more than just the torture and mockery. He was going to bear so much more. There's this verse in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter points out that he carried more than just a crown of thorns and a trio of nails. He carried the weight of the sins of humanity. And with that came the wrath of God that we deserve. With that comes the, the outpouring of God's wrath on him. See, for thousands of years, God's wrath had been on display. If we read the Old Testament, we see this cycle of what's happening as God's people run away from him and run towards other things, and God, God's wrath falls upon them, and they feel that brokenness, and they experience that brokenness, and they return to God saying, forgive us, and God accepts them. And then they forget God, and they return to the things of the world, and God's wrath falls, and then they return to God, and then they run from God, and God's wrath falls and over and over and over again. It has been spelled out time and time and time again, the, the wrath of God that leveled nations of plagues and deaths and, and, and exile and lostness, all of these things, this tremendous wrath that has the ability to level nations was about to fall on one man. One man. That weight is beyond comprehension. So no, it's not weakness, it's honesty. Honesty, he needed to trust in the Father to strengthen him in these moments. A reliance on the Father was necessary as the full humanity of Christ came to grips with the reality of what he was about to bear. Luke writes in his account in, in verse 24 of chapter 22, Sorry, 44 of 22 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is the the image we get in the Garden of Gethsemane. This man under such tremendous weight that, that, that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. That's the picture we get. That's the weight. And that's why in this moment of ultimate sorrow, Jesus needed to rely on the Father as he willingly accepted the betrayal that was coming. See, see the reliance on the Father also develops an endurance for moments when the world cannot walk with us. Reliance on the Father develops an endurance 
for these moments when, when the world can't walk with us. And that's what Jesus was going through here. Moments where the world wasn't going to be able to go where he was going. And we see this in the interaction with the disciples. Interestingly, it foreshadows the betrayal that Jesus would face. The betrayal began before G- Judas even showed up. Before Judas even comes and kisses Jesus on the, the cheek, this ultimate act of betrayal, the betrayal began with the disciples falling asleep when they were asked to pray and be with him. As fully man, Jesus was modeling for us exactly what we would do in times of crisis, right? When you are in times of crisis, you lean on friends and family. He was seeking moral support from others, showing his full humanity. He was inviting the disciples to be with him in these moments of ultimate sorrow. Mark 14, 32 through 34 it says, they went to the place called Gethsemane, and they said to the, he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my, sorrow, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. I love the visual here, this uh, modeling of friendship. Just like us, Jesus has those friends who are a little bit closer. This isn't like choosing favorites. That, that God is doing here. It's simply a model of how friendship works, right? I mean, friendship works like this. You have friends that are just simply closer to you. It's not that you, you've chosen to reject all other friends. It's simply the, the nature of how God designed us. We are going to open ourselves up to, to a closer few, and yet we still reach out to others. So like an example, when you're going through a hard time, you're going to uh, let people know, hey, I'm going through a hard time. Uh, pray, you know, pray for me. Be, be there for me. But then with that close group of friends, okay, but here's what it is. This is what I'm facing. And that's what he does here. That's what he models for, for us. He says, he says, sit here while I pray. He invites them all into these moments. And then he takes the, that inner circle and he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and, and watch. Pray with me. Be here. Invites them in to see a, a closer glimpse of this. Now, I read over and over this as I was preparing this sermon, and I, I read that sentence. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. I don't know about you, but if my best friend said that to me, I'm not sleeping. <laughs> Like, I can't imagine a friend saying, I am so burdened that I feel like my life is fleeting. Just pray for me. I will not sleep. I'd be so worried and burdened for my friend. And yet the disciples can't keep their eyes open. It's this picture of the weakness that they were all going to face. Every single one of them. He says, sit here and pray. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? You couldn't watch with me. You couldn't pray for me. You couldn't be here for me one hour. He kind of singles out Peter here. And the reason is, on their walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, on their walk, Jesus foretells them their betrayal, that they're going to leave him, that he is going to be alone. 
They're walking to this moment, and he tells them all of this, but not Peter. P- Peter doesn't hear that. He says, not me, God. Everybody else will leave you, but not me. I'm staying. And Jesus, I'm paraphrasing here, but Jesus is like, oh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the sun even comes up. You're going to run further than most. Peter's like, no, I, I'm not going to leave you. How can I possibly do that? Yeah, Peter, you're going to leave me. And here, before he's even given the opportunity to lie that he even knew Jesus, here in this moment, he can't even, can't even be there for him. He's already failing. Falling asleep was a picture that their hearts were not ready to follow through and bear the burden with Christ. It's our picture of how truly alone Jesus was. Truly abandoned. And every time he returned, every time he returned to see his friends, the disciples asleep, what does he do? He wakes them up and says, why have you fallen asleep? And then he goes and goes back to pray. Comes back, finds them sleeping. What's going on? Then he returns to pray. There's a constant in this. There's two constants. One, his friends keep failing. And two, he knows the Father's always there. See, that reliance on the Father, that truth, that understanding that we need to embrace reminds us that when our friends can't bear our burdens, God is faithful. And here's the truth. I'm not trying to say, hey, all your friends are going to run from you. I'm not trying to say that at all. But the nature of life is we surround ourselves with friends who are as weak as we are, as broken as we are. And there will come times in life, and many of you have already experienced this, where people just can't go where you have to go. People can't bear the burdens that you have to burden to bear. People can't do that. They can't follow you there. They can try. They can be as present as possible. For, for example, I've, I've been so grateful that I haven't had to go through the loss of a parent. I've had friends who have. I've seen students who have walked through that. I've seen um, mentors and people I respect walk through that. And as heavy as that, that is, and as much as I want to be there with them, there's always going to be that divide of I can't empathize with you. I can't walk in this as much as you'd like me to. It's not because I don't want to. It's because sometimes in our limitations, we're not going to be able to go where people need us to go. And that's in those moments where our friends just can't walk with us, we have to know the truth that God is faithful. We have to know that we can rely on him. Because what would happen otherwise if we put all reliance on the things of this world and the people of this world is when they fail, not because of a hatred towards you, not because of a disgust towards you or a frustration with the situation, simply because burdens get great. When it fails, if we don't remember that truth of the reliance, we are going to feel lost. We're going to feel lost. We're going to feel abandoned. Jesus continually returning to God, praying the same thing over and over again trying to embrace that, that truth and, and abandon himself to the will of God. 
Every time he found his friends sleeping, he returned to the Father. So again, this isn't to suggest that we don't rely on others, that we go, okay, well, if I can't, if I can't uh, follow uh, people, if I can't, can't uh, you know, rely on them, that I'm only going to rely on God, I'm going to become a hermit and, and, and live in, uh, in seclusion. That's not it at all. Jesus models for us the opposite. He invites the disciples, even though they, they cannot bear this burden. He invites them into this. We should continue to surround ourselves with friends and invite them to be a part of the things and the struggles that we go through in our lives. It simply means that we don't lose sight of where our ability to endure comes from. Psalm 23.4, that very popular psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When we go where others struggle to follow, we have to remember that our Father in heaven is present. And he is faithful. He's the source of our comfort in crisis. He's the one that conquers fear. Have to remember that. Lastly, in the garden, we see that reliance on the Father prepares us to face temptation. It prepares us to fight against temptation. Because that's exactly what Jesus was doing in this. Every uh, single account of this, he says uh, that pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's what he tells the disciples. Pray that you may not enter into temptation, that you may not. But he's modeling the exact thing he's asking of them. He's going to the Father to pray that he wouldn't enter into temptation. And the temptation was great. Again, fully man. The temptation was there. It doesn't mean he was void of temptation. He faced this. And what was this great temptation? It was what he would be mocked for, on, mocked with on the cross. And it's actually a temptation he felt at the beginning of his ministry. See, uh, I see this really interesting kind of mirroring at the ends of Jesus' ministry. When his ministry began, uh, as he's baptized in the Jordan River, the skies open up and the Holy Spirit falls uh, upon him. And, and God says, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. And then he goes into the desert and he's tempted. And in that temptation, he's, he's taken and given an opportunity to throw himself um, off from a great height. As the devil says, do this and the angels will catch you. What, what that was was a temptation to force God's hand. A temptation to remove God's will from his control into Jesus' control. And in that moment, Jesus refuses to subvert the will of God. And he rebukes Satan. He says, I'm not going to put the Lord, my God, to the test. So fast forward towards the end of his life, this mere image of this, now he's being tempted in the same way. On the, the other end, we have the temptation followed by the cross, followed by this moment. And, and in the moment on the cross, it's opposite, kind of a mirror image, uh, in a sense, of what happens in his baptism as he is now taking upon all sin. And now the skies are not parting. The skies are getting darkened. And the temptation in that moment is the same way he was mocked on the cross. If you're the son of God, take yourself down from that cross. 
You can do it. He knew this. He knew this. And he pleads with God, may this cup of wrath be taken from me. That's what he wants. He's tempted. And yet he refuses to let go and pull away from the will of God. He said, yet your will, not mine. Same temptation taking place. And he knew that the only way from the desert to the garden, the only way you battle this temptation is going to the Father and relying on him. In the Luke telling of this, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. The same thing happened at the the end of his time in the wilderness as he was tempted by the devil. When he went and relied on God, he was sustained by God. The same is for us. When we are tempted and facing great temptation, we need to rely on God because the temptation is there, the temptation to abandon obedience for rebellion. That's what we're, we're tempted to do. And that's in our, our workplace, in our families, in the content we consume, in the substances we consume, in how we um, act on social media and how we interact with uh, people in our everyday lives. We, we are constantly met with the temptation to abandon obedience for rebellion over and over and over again in our sin nature, in our brokenness. That is what we are tempted to do. We want to run from the will of God to have immediate gratification and reject the upward call of God. Jesus tells his disciples in the garden, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He looks at them sleeping and says, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about their human spirit. He knows that they want to be there for Jesus. He knows they're not willingly you know, just casting off Jesus like, I'd rather nap. No, their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. They're failing. And what we see modeled for the, us in this is there are many well-intentioned Christians who, who, who find it very difficult to, even though they're, they're well-intentioned, to actually follow through with what God is asking of them. And that's what's being faced for us. Um, in January, I started trying to eat right. It was kind of a New Year's resolution thing. I don't usually do New Year's resolution, but um, I was with a group, kind of in a group of youth pastors, all really working towards this. And uh, I lost a considerable amount of weight until I hit uh, our D Now retreat, which was a couple weeks ago at the end of February, where we eat junk food all weekend, and uh, and it's exhausting. It's a lot of work that I, that I put into that. And so I got done with that retreat, and I found myself saying, uh, not wanting to make the effort of eating right, because I felt like I had put in enough effort to deserve whatever food I wanted. I was self-medicating with burgers. <laughs> I was just saying, I, I remember thinking that, of, oh, I'm tired, I worked hard, I deserve this. 
See, when we do that, we have a mindset like that, what we're doing is we are removing God from the throne uh, of, of our lives and we're placing ourselves on that throne, saying, I know what I need greater than God does. And so it removes all idea of relying on God and only relying on ourselves and meeting our personal desires. When we stop relying on God, we place us on the throne that he belongs on, and those shoes are too big for us to fill. <laughs> Let me uh, end with this. Um, when I was uh, in seventh grade, I was on a mission trip to Panama City, Florida. And on this mission trip, we went to the, the ocean one day, we went to the beach. We probably shouldn't have been swimming. I don't think we understood the flag system. You know, uh, if you've ever been to the beach, they, they put up certain flags to say, don't swim in the water today. But we were out there. It was kind of a, a slightly overcast, uh, stormy weekend, you, you know. And, and, but this day was kind of uh, clear enough for us to get out to the ocean, so we went. And uh, I know this surprises you based on my story about um, Kyle Pockets um, that I kind of wandered off um, from the group. <laughs> Surprise. Um, I wandered off from, from the group, and I just kind of went out swimming. And I was swimming and swimming, and I had never heard of this idea called an undertow. I'd never heard of it. Seventh grade kid, wasn't super athletic. <laughs> just admitting that. And so as I'm just kind of like floating and just playing and, and just kind of relaxing, um, I start noticing I'm a lot further out than I thought I was. Like, oh, I got to get back. Like my, my friends are all the way over there. So I start swimming. And as I swim, I, I start to feel that every stroke I'm being pulled further back than I can get out. Repeatedly, I start to panic. I swim harder, but that pull harder and harder back. Thankfully, youth pastor saw me way out in the distance. And a youth worker um, came sprinting out and swims out to me and he grabs me and he said, and I'm trying to help. He said, don't don't help me. He said, when you move, I cannot. And he starts swimming as hard as he can, carrying a seventh grader on his back. And he makes it all the way back. I sit down on the sand. And he pats me on the shoulder and walks off. And then my youth pastor walks over and goes, how about you stay out of the water? <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Fast forward to uh, now. Um, Recently, we took a vacation to Florida, and it was the first time my son Walter had seen the beach, and so we, we take him out to the ocean, and he has an instant fear and respect for waves, like, oh, they look cool until they touch your feet, and ah, it freaks out. Um, he wouldn't go in the ocean, not unless I was holding him. And I couldn't help but think of, of this moment where I, I really almost lost my life in, in the ocean. The only way that my son was going to get in those waves was if his daddy was holding him. It was the only way. When, when I wasn't with him, he wouldn't touch the water. When I was with him, he pointed and said, Daddy, can we go out there? I'd go as far as I could take us. Out to a little sandbar. We could see all the fish, and I'd look up at, at all the birds flying by and, and all these different things. It was a beautiful, awesome thing. But he wouldn't let me let go. I was okay with that. See, some of us are, are swimming out in life not realizing about how much we're being pulled until we look back at the shore and go, how did I get here? 
how did I think that I had the strength for this on my own? And what we need to do, like my son falling down and hurting himself, is put our arms up and say, Daddy, I need you. Father, I need to rely on you. Father, I need you. I need to stop trying to do this on my own because I will not be able to fight this, but God, you can. And in those arms, like my son in the ocean, in the arms of his father, in those arms, something amazing happens. We are strengthened to face temptation. We are strengthened to face the things of this world. We are strengthened to go out against a world that is against us. And in doing so, we experience freedom. Tremendous freedom. No longer are we slaves to the undertow of this life, being pulled out further than we want. No longer is that taking place. Now we experience the freedom that's only found in our reliance with the Father. So my, my question for you, my, my urging for you, is that you would take yourself off that throne and rely on him and him alone. Rely on him, because apart from him, there's nothing that can satisfy. There's nothing that can meet the needs that we have. There's nothing that can fill that void of lostness. Nothing like the Father. Would you pray with me? I think many of us have felt that, felt that pulling of the world, the find ourselves far away from where we want to be. I'm so thankful for the model that Jesus gave in the garden. Faithfully, consistently relying on the Father. My prayer for us is that we would humble ourselves the way we rely on the Father and in relying on the Father we would understand and have grace for when the things of this world fail us because we know we have an anchor in Jesus an anchor in our Holy Spirit His Holy Spirit as our comfort and in the Father we can face temptation. Not that the waves disappear. Not that the battle is, is over, but the battle, as we go through it, we know we will have victory. That's the difference. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we embrace you. May we embrace you. No matter the weight of our burdens, may we follow that model of Jesus in the garden, falling on his face, it's the weight. May we abandon our control and allow you to be our guide. Allow you to be our strength. May we rely on you and you alone. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you that he did not, did not stop inviting us, humanity, to be near in these moments we can see a glimpse of you struggling as we do, tempted as we are. 
May we respond. May we respond by relying on you, God the Father, as the Son modeled for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.